0: Alright, well you can grab your handouts. If you did not get a handout, you're just coming in. Some of those of you coming in a little late, we got handouts somewhere. Do we still have them? There we go. Charlotte's got them. She'll bring the one there. And uh, It's been a couple weeks. Again, appreciate Richard filling in for me last week while we were gone. Uh, when we continue our study on the end times, and remember that uh, word you'll see often, eschatology. It's a big fancy word. All that means is the study of the end times, and uh, and so tonight, you'll see in your handout, we are looking at the rapture, and that's a one next to that. So this is the rapture, part one. Um, but I, I want you to imagine for a moment, you're living in London. Just imagine for a moment, you're living in London. Um, if you want to imagine yourself with the accent, you can, I guess, if you want to, but you don't have to. And the year is 16, 66, all right? You're living in London, 1666. You history buffs will know where I might be going with that year, but it's 1666, you're living in London. It's towards the end of that year, and nearly a quarter of those living in London, nearly 25% have died from the bubonic plague that's been ravaging the city from 65 into 66, also now known as the Great Plague of London. So nearly 25% of the population of the city has died. And the Great Fire of London, which started in early September that year, has destroyed more than 80% of the city. So you're living in London, 1666 At the end of the year, 25% of your city has died from the bubonic plague, and 80% of it has been destroyed by this fire, and 666 obviously has appeared in the year. Um, causing you to think about Revelation 13 and this mark of the beast and so on, what's your conclusion as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, as you're getting close to maybe the holidays, thinking about things, it might be the conclusion that many Christians had in that day, it's the end of the world, it's all coming to an end, this must be the end of all things. But as we know, that wasn't the case. And days came and went, years came and went, the city was rebuilt, people moved on, centuries have now come and gone and we're wondering When, oh Lord, when? Because we want to know the when, right? We want to know when's it gonna happen? When is the end of this movie? Um, The same way that every time, and I use this analogy a lot when I'm going to the mountains, when will we finally arrive those brilliant, beautiful, honking things there on the horizon? Um, Because all I'm seeing is flat lands, no trees, and I'm smelling a lot of cattle, that's all I've got. When will we arrive? Um, And because of that, because we want to know the when, we also want to know what happens right before that will give us some kind of um, heads up, if you will. And so in other words, take the mountain analogy again. We want to know, okay, when am I going to start seeing the shadows? When is the road going to get a little bit more curvier? Uh, Things like that, because when those things begin to happen, we know we're getting close. Um, and so we want to know the when, and we want to know what kinds of events and happenings will happen right before that will give us a clear picture of the when. And this debate, this longing, has prompted all sorts of interpretations on key passages. Questions have been brought about, theories, conversations on things like tribulation and millennium and rapture and his appearing and arrival and on the church and Israel, etc., etc., etc. And we've seen that overview. We've kind of had a brief introduction for the first couple of weeks. And I gave you this little line here that I kind of redrew right before to kind of help you kind of visualize some of these different theories. Um, but you got all things begin. If you picture this line on the left, Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. So that's kind of the beginning. And then the we'll little cross kind of represents the, the first arrival. Um, of Jesus and his birth and life and ministry and death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension. And his ascension back into heaven. And then you get the church age. And then that seven years kind of begins that time of what we talk about the tribulation. And I've got three arrows all pointing out. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but those three arrows kind of represent people's theories on or thoughts on the rapture. And so some would say, hey, the rapture, which we'll talk more in depth tonight, is going to happen right before that seven years of tribulation. Some would say, no, it's going to happen at three and a half year mark, the midpoint. Or some would say, hey, it's going to happen post-tribulation or after that tribulation. And then you got the arrow coming down. They would say that is Jesus' arrival, an earthly arrival, his second coming where he establishes this earthly kingdom on earth. And he sets up this 1,000-year millennium reign. And, um, and we'll get into more of that as well. Um, Some would say that will happen then. Others would argue that that will happen after the 1,000 years. Um, again, we looked at all that. And then you get to the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth, and a happily ever after. Um, but there's a lot there. And we've kind of just looked at the bird's eye view of all of that. Um, Again, a simple introduction of things like dispensationalism, covenant theology, what I talked about with light theology two weeks ago. But now we're gonna dive into the weeds. We're gonna kinda break this apart, uh, get a little closer. Uh, We're gonna land the plane, if you will, and get a little closer. And I wanna start, as you can see with your handout, with the rapture, with the rapture. And this will probably take us about two to three weeks to unpack. and th- again, that's almost like an introduction. But if there's so much, there's so many moving parts underneath this idea of the rapture. And uh, so, three questions tonight. Three questions tonight as we look at this. Three questions I want to answer. And again, and then next week we'll begin to look at okay, these passages that we'll kind of briefly look at tonight and ask ourselves: Okay, is that is that what these scriptures are saying? Uh, Is it plausible to take it that way? And so on, we'll look at that beginning next week. But tonight, these three questions. Uh, You see it there on your handout, this first blank. Where did the idea of a rapture originate? Where did the idea of a rapture originate? So that's question number one. Question number two is, what is the rapture? We talk about the rapture, and the rapture, and the rapture, and the rapture. What is the rapture? And then the third question we'll try to answer here tonight is why do many of us believe in the rapture? Why do many people believe in the rapture? And so we'll start here, breaking down question one. Where did the idea of a rapture originate? And to answer this question, we really need to look at a guide by the name of, you'll see there on your handouts, John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby. He is known as the founder or the father of dispensationalism. So your two blanks there under where is John Nelson Darby, the founder or the father of dispensationalism. And out of this Theology that we're gonna look a little bit at tonight um, is birth, the rapture as we know it, as we kind of envision it. Uh, now he did not invent the idea of God working through seasons or ages or dispensations, time periods, or even the, the idea of the rapture. As We'll see that idea of the rapture is in scripture. <clears throat> but what John Darby did is he put language to the rapture And he put theology behind it, and thus kind of has created this vision of the rapture as we kind of know it today. So if you've ever seen like the Left Behind movies, Left Behind books, you know, uh, things like that, that, that's kind of birthed from this vision that he had. Um, So who's this John Darby guy? Uh, John Darby was born in 1800, um, born in 1800 in the city of London, in the city of London, He was born into a very large, prominent family. um, Nine children in his family. And he received his education there in London at Westminster School. And then he went on to Dublin, where he attended Trinity College. And at Trinity College, he excelled in languages. Okay, just kind of keep that little nugget in the back of your head. He was really good with languages. Um, some people are, right? They just know how they can learn different languages really, really quickly. I'm not one of those. But John Darby was uh, very good at languages. And um, in fact, he, uh, he won a very prestigious medal at his graduation in 1819 because of his skill in languages and classic studies. But anyways, someone there, John Darby began to pursue law. He wanted to be a lawyer, and um, where's Carrie at? Is Carrie around here? And he missed out. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him later. Don't worry. But anyways, he wanted to pursue his law studies, and so he initially becomes a lawyer. But he only continued in that career for four years before he became a priest a priest in the Church of Ireland. And the reason he kind of had this career change is because he had this massive conversion experience. And that experience kind of led him to have this desire to devote himself entirely to the work of God. In other words, he felt called to the ministry. And so um, he leaves being a lawyer and becomes a priest in the Church of Ireland. After just a couple of years as a priest, he became concerned over the condition of the church. From his perspective, the church in Ireland in the 1800s had become spiritually dead. Very high churchy, very all about the formalities, um, using language and stuff like that, but not actually living this out. Um, so he left the Church of Ireland in 1827, just over two years after being installed as a priest. He joins up with a few people um, who were part of a non-denominational group. And they called themselves the Brethren. They called themselves the Brethren. And they began to meet in Dublin, there in Ireland. And other meetings followed this. And they had these assemblies that gathered in several locations. And the most well-known group was in Plymouth, England, and thus the name Plymouth Brethren became a popular name. Now, what's interesting about that is we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years here in the United States kind of a non-denominational movement. Matter of fact, if you were to, to add up all the, not those who are part of non-denominational churches, it would be bigger than any Protestant denomination like the Southern Baptists, for example. And many of them began their non-denominational churches and movements as kind of a rebuttal or an anti-high churchy. It's become too high church, so we need it to be more simple, right? This is where you get seeker-friendly. We need to become more seeker-friendly and all those kind of things. Well, John Darby and these boys were doing this in the 1800s. And so this, in essence, is what they did. They start this Church of the Brethren, in essence, and it became a movement, and they met in multiple locations, and people were drawing, being drawn towards it, and so on, and he wanted to create just a simple church, a simple church. Uh, Again, this was a reaction against the high church, very formality, very formal kind of gatherings of the Church of Ireland. Uh, And so, in 1828, John Darby publishes a pamphlet which in essence was his doctrinal statement, what do the brethren believe? And so here was the 1830s and 1840s, the leader of this Plymouth Brethren movement, a non-denominational movement, and people are being drawn towards it. And during this time, he wrote extensively, he was a writer, and he produced a very literal, it's a very rough reading, but it's very literal, but it was a new translation, of the Bible into English. Remember, he was skilled in languages. And so he translated the Bible into English, and it's now known as the Darby Bible. So you can get on Amazon tonight if you want to, go buy the Darby Bible. Um, So he translated that. He also produced German and French translations of the Bible. So some of you need to start working, all right? You need to start translating the Bible into multiple languages. But his main contribution to church history What people really remember him for comes in being the founder, the father of this dispensationalism and really from his interpretation methods and his vision for the church, for Israel, and then comes this idea of the rapture. So in 1827, John Darby had a serious horse riding accident, which caused him to be laid up for many, many months. So he's laid up for many, many months, and during this time, he embarks on an intense study of the Bible. And during that time, he reached three main significant conclusions, um, really that shaped his way of interpreting Scripture. And I have them listed here. Darby's three overall conclusions. Number one is, this is your next blank, strict literalism. Strict, S-T-R-I-C-T, strict literalism. In other words, when you walk through scripture, the best interpretation method is literal, 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 literal. And he was very adamant about that, very adamant on that, that it must be interpreted strictly literally. (laughs) Number two, the separation of the church and Israel. So he was very adamant that the church and the nation of Israel, specifically like ethnic Israel, are two distinct groups, two distinct identities, with two distinct futures. Um, so the words he would argue, especially with his dispensation, remember which are kind of like seasons, like, okay, we're in the church season now, which you'll see here in a moment, but God's real plan is to restore ethnic Israel and to provide all those promises to ethnic Israel and so on and so forth. And so he saw in his vision, ethnic Israel kind of over here and the church over here, and God had kind of two competing futures for them too. Um especially during the millennium. And um, But anyway, so that that was another key conclusion that he had was the separation of the church and Israel. And then number three, the church is in ruins and needs the rapture. The rapture is the church's only hope. In other words, to to save us from ourselves. Um, The church is in ruins and is awaiting this event known as the rapture, and it's the church only, only hope. So you put all these together, and uh, you can see Darby's massive influence. So again, dispensationalism, which is a heavy focus on eschatology at the end times, stresses two distinct peoples of God, Israel and the church, and would argue that we must interpret scripture strictly literally, and that the only hope of the church is to be raptured out, to be taken away. So again, Darby's division of history from the Israel to the church back to Israel and so on wasn't necessarily a radical theological change, but according to some sources, what made his perspective, his approach, significantly different than any other time in church history um, is one, his strict literalism for everything, whether you're studying apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature, Narrative, so on and so forth, it doesn't matter. It needs to be taken strictly literally. That was a big deal. Uh, The separation of Israel and the church was a big deal. But here's the biggest deal. Seeing the rapture and the second coming of Jesus as two distinct future events. Not part of the same event, but two distinct different events. His views on church membership and on eschatology, the study of the times, Combined with his inflexible position, he was unwilling to be flexible on this, it eventually split the Brethren Church. And so it splits the church, and uh, those who sided with John Darby became known as the Exclusive Brethren, or the Darbyites. The others, they call themselves the Open Brethren. Um, we see this all the time. We see church splits, Right? Uh, Southern Baptists, uh, we saw the Baptist split some time ago over slavery. The Southern Baptists were for slavery. Um, the Northern Baptists were not. And that's, that's our history. We were Southern Baptists. We that was the big breaking point. Um, so we've seen this before, and that's what happens. Because of his views on church membership and eschatology, and unwilling to even dialogue over it, really, it splits the Brethren Church from exclusive brethren to the open brethren. Well, things got really tense for him. Uh, Very awkward, as divisions often do, and church splits often do. And so what does John Darby do? After all that, he leaves Europe. And guess where he comes? Ah, to the wonderful United States of America. Where he embarked on seven speaking tours. So we, we see this today, right? With um, you know, speakers will travel around. Um, bands will travel around on tour. Um, you saw that back in those days as well. You had these traveling preachers, you know, and revivals and so on. Well, John Darby comes to the United States, and from 1859 to 1874, he embarks on these seven different speaking tours throughout the United States and Canada, and we, you know, I say we, uh, the United States at that time was just, man, he was opening up something that they had not heard before or seen before, and widespread popularity grew um, specifically on his theological perspectives and interpretation models. So, that's what happens. During this time, there was a young man by the name of Cyrus. C-Y-R-U-S. He hears, he listens, and man, he eats up Darby's interpretational methods and theology and what we would call, as a technical term, hermeneutics. It's kind of the process in which you approach Scripture for interpretation. Later on, though, so Cyrus grows up. He himself becomes a theologian, an author, and a speaker. And in 1909, 1909, Cyrus produces... A brilliant piece of work, way ahead of his time. Um, Anybody know what that was that was produced in 1909? All right, you'll know this name. How about C.I. Schofield? Cyrus Schofield would publish the first, what we would call really the first study Bible, the first annotated Bible, reference Bible, Uh, great piece of work, very influential, and so the Schofield Reference Bible was widely circulated in, after that publishing date in 1909. Uh, he updated it, I think, in like the late 19-teens, like 1917-ish. Um, but anyways, so he had such a massive influence by John Darby that dispensationalism definitely had its presence throughout his um, reference Bible. And, uh, and throughout the 20th century, many seminaries many pastors and theologians that was just kind of the direction they went because this is how you are to take it um, a big one is dallas theological seminary just down there at dts uh, and uh, it's a great school a lot of great people have come out of there and uh, so anyways that spreads throughout the 20th century and thus today, um, the dispensational view and approach to scripture, especially when it comes to the end times, is the, the overall majority accepted view uh, in books like the Left Behind series that me growing up at First Baptist Ponca City was right up there with our textbooks. I mean, this was like right up there, you know, and every 35,000 copies of it, I feel like there was so many, there's always so many of them. And so uh, the Tim LaHaye's of the world, Um, And that's just kind of what they produced in a a fictional sense. But this was the view they were producing or coming from dispensationalism and the rapture view. Um, So that in essence, and we'll see, though, that's not where its ultimate origin comes from. We see it in scripture. But again, what John Darby did is he put language to it. And he put a theology behind it to, to really produce that dispensational view. So that's kind of the origin story there in a nutshell. But what exactly is the rapture? Let's keep going here. What exactly is it? Well, the rapture, according to the rapture, the second coming of Jesus, Jesus will happen in two phases. To next point there, two phases. Depending on some of your views in here, it could actually be more than that. But generally speaking, from the John Darby traditional dispensational view on the rapture, really the second coming of Jesus will happen in two phases. And so here's the next thing. The first phase is a hidden coming of Jesus. You can call it secret coming, but hidden is probably... better term the first phase is a hidden or secret coming of Jesus to snatch or to catch up or to rapture the church that's your next blank there the church out of the world and right before the great tribulation so in essence Jesus will come secret secretively or hidden he will come for believers both living and dead, in the rapture. And we'll look at why here in a moment when we kind of read through like 1 Thessalonians 4. But in this view, the rapture is the transformation and the catching up of all Christians, dead or alive, to meet Christ in the air. Uh, Now there's some debate here. When we say transformation, are we talking about their resurrected bodies, we're talking about just their souls. What are we talking about here? Uh, but this will be unknown to the world. It, it'll just happen. Like a thief in the night. It'll just happen. We have these images, right? And this comes from scripture, some of these images. But two people lying in a bed. And one is taken away and leaves, leaving their clothes, right? Or something like that. And the other is left behind. Hence the left behind series. Or two people are walking along the road. And one is taken away or snatched away and the other is left there. Uh, again, very similar to like what we see with like an Enoch or an Elijah or something like that, right? Remember, Elisha is just there, and, and all of a sudden, you know, everything happens with the fire and the chariots and so on, and Elijah's gone, and it's like, what just happened? Um, and so um, that's where you get this idea of hidden. It's all of a sudden, a person's there, and then they're just snatched away. Uh, now some people might envision them literally their bodies like a balloon floating I guess to the sky you know I don't know but um, how that tangibly looks in your mind is up to you I guess but um, but the effect of this removal the effect the implications of this will be felt and known by the world we just imagine you're taking the church out imagine if you take the light out of the darkness or the salt out of the food or the health of something. Uh, The city on the hill. Uh, So Darby and those who built on his theology would argue that this secret or hidden event will thus kickstart this seven years of tribulation. And of course there's people in tribulation right now. Horrific things are going on right now for a lot of believers. um, Things that we just wouldn't even imagine. The abuse, the torture, the persecution, the enslavement, the the wrong, and then you study church history, and you see all sorts of things. Um, but this great tribulation would be worse than we've ever ever seen, on a much more kind of cosmic kind of level. Um, we'll look more at the tribulation later. Uh, but they would argue that this rapture, this hidden event, kickstarts that seven years of tribulations where things will get really really bad. Um, And again, which makes sense if you take the church out of the equation, you just get darkness. You just get darkness. Um, And then, so that's the first event, Jesus is coming. That would be the first phase, I mean. The second phase would be, according to this view, after the period of seven years of tribulation on earth. And again, if you're a mid-tribulationist, you would say after three and a half years, but... Anyways, after seven years of tribulations on earth, Christ will return to the earth with his church, the saints who were raptured. But again, I've mentioned this. There's debate even on that. Some would say, no, he's not going to return with all the the believers. He's just going to return with those who were martyred for the faith, those who were killed for the faith. And then some would argue, no, no, no. He's only going to return that thousand-year reign is going to be with just ethnic Jewish believers, and during that time he's going to bring in kind of the Jews and so on and so forth. Um, like I said, you really get into the weeds of this, and it's like 19 different views on it, every little little topic. But either way, for John Darby and the dispensationalist view, and the, what has been built out of this. Um, During that time, that 1,000-year reign, Jesus will be victorious over his enemies and he'll reign on earth for that millennium with the saints or the church or Israel. Um, And then he will, then, the great judgment, right? What Jesus talks about separating the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the wicked, and then usher in his new creation, right? The new heavens and the new earth. All right, so the big thing there with the, what it is, is the taking out of the church at some point in the finite future, taking them out, catching them up. And that's the first phase. That happens in kind of this hidden event. And then the second phase is then a visible coming of Jesus, setting up his millennium reign, and then so on and so forth. All right, now, why? Why Why? Why does... This happened, right? Why does this view come about? Um, Why does John Darby walk away? Why do we read scripture and come away with this view? Well, I've given you just a list there in your handout of just some key passages on this view of the rapture. The main, main one, the main foundational passage is 1 Thessalonians 4 13 through 18. Again, next week we're going to really look at each one of these passages and look at the context and read them and and is is that what Paul is saying? Is that what John was saying and these guys saying or is it something else or somewhere in between? We'll look at that next week. But I just want to look at the why behind this. And these let's look at these passages. But first Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is really the main one that really feeds into the other ones or is used to kind of be the flashlight on these other passages. Um, But like I said earlier, you see the idea of rapture in Scripture. So the first example we see is Enoch, right? Who walked with God and so on, and then he was just not. You know, um, he was caught up. And the author of Hebrews even reemphasizes that in chapter 11, verse 5. I got the reference there for you. And he was just walking, and then he was just caught up. um, you also see that with Elijah. We mentioned Elijah there in 2 Kings chapter two. You see that event, um, but you also see um, before we leave the 1 Thessalonians passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about this in this uh, this long chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. He kind of defends the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and then talks about its significance and so on. And then he kind of paints this this image, this picture here at the end of this chapter. And, uh, And he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all be, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And this will happen in the moment. The twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He goes on there a little bit more, which we'll look at next week. But again, some would argue that's that's referring to the rapture. Um, another uh, another spot is uh, John fourteen. John fourteen. You'll see I got a reference there. Remember, this is uh, Jesus is getting close to the portrayal and everything, and uh, right before his famous, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Um, He's, he's trying to tell them not to be afraid. Not to be afraid. So John 14, verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if we are not so. But I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be, also, And so many people would say, hey, that's that's talking about the rapture there, where he's going to come back and grab his bride. He's talking about his bride there. It's a marriage analogy he's using here to take his bride back with him to his father's house. Uh, so that's another spot there, kind of the why. Um, before I look at Luke 17, Revelation 4.1 is a big one. It's a big one that, that a lot of people look at. Revelation 4. Verse one, so you got right where where Jesus through John is addressing the churches um, here in Revelation, and then you get to Revelation four one, where John writes. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Is that trumpet again? Right, you, you know people think about hey First Corinthians fifteen, Paul envisioned a trumpet and. We get that, the last trumpet of the last trumpet a lot. So I heard someone speaking to me like a trumpet, and it said, come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after this. And so some people would argue, hey, the church isn't mentioned again until way later in Revelation, well after the Great Tribulation. And thus, this is, in a way, God taking the church out, kind of like representing here through John. He's taking them out up into heaven, during the great tribulation and we see them reunited at the end. So that's one spot here. Another big, big spot is Luke 17. again, I encourage you this week to go back and look at these passages, read through them, context, all that. But Luke 17, verse 20 through 37. Um, I didn't write it on here, but Matthew 24, and 25, those, those two chapters are big also. It's, and we'll look more at them later, but that's uh, the, the Olivet Discourse. Remember I've talked about it where Jesus is right outside Jerusalem, sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's overlooking the city of Jerusalem, just coming from the temple. And he starts talking about things that clearly represent the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD, but also starts talking about things beyond that. And uh, this passage in Luke 17, is Luke's version of Jesus' words from the Olivet Discourse. Uh, But I'm just going to read a few verses here. Uh, Let's just say, verse 22, Luke 17. Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Hey, look there, or hey, look here. Don't go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What were they doing in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. That's a, that's a key image that Luke brings about from Jesus' talk, but also Matthew does as well, going back to the event of the flood. So they're eating, and they're destroyed. Likewise, verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Hey, remember Lot's wife? Don't become a pillar of salt, right? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So they just asked, where are they gonna be taken? His answer, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So we'll we'll, we'll look at that passage a little bit more. But again, people look at that to say, ah, see, he's talking about the rapture there and so on, taking the church away. Um, So those are kind of the main passages. Again, you can add Matthew 24 and 25 to that. But let's let's look again, though. Let's go over here to 1 Thessalonians 4. Because like I said, this is the main, main passage where we get the idea of the rapture. I don't want to tell you why. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And this is what Paul writes. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, in other words, those who have already died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, you need to look at death differently than the world does. Remember what Jesus told Mary and Martha, like, about the, res- being him, the resurrection of the life, right? Those who believe in me, though they die, yet, should they live? Those who believe in him would never die. So in other words, hey, he's saying, we need to look at death differently than the world. But he wants to talk about those who have fallen asleep because there is, uh, and we'll look at a little bit more of this next week. A lot of the readers were concerned and troubled because one of the common things that was going on there is they, people were saying, hey, you've missed out. You've missed out on the coming of Jesus. and And so they were troubled by this. Like, man, am I going to... What's going to happen to me? You know, am I going to experience this? What's going to happen? And, and Paul's like, hey, we don't want you to be uninformed of this. We believe, verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord: that we who are alive who are left. Until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, hey, don't be discouraged. Like You're not going to miss out on something. You know, If you're in Christ, through Christ, you're going to experience those who have gone before you. You're already dead. You're, you're, you're not going to miss out. Don't worry. Uh, you will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of what? Trumpet, right? Remember what John heard a a sound in Revelation 4, like a trumpet? Paul talks about this trumpet, 1 1 Corinthians 15. A cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up. This is that snatched up. It's the same kind of imagery as what happened with Enoch, Elijah. Uh, remember Philip? Remember he was taken away in Acts? You remember that? He was just, all of a sudden he was gone. You know, it's, it's that kind of language and image. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words and so again this is the a, a main one that, that people will look at it's kind of the foundational passage to the rapture understanding and theology and vision and all those other ones I've mentioned and there's there's more but it, it kind of all hinges on this passage here and what Paul envisioned here with the dead rising and those who are alive being caught up together raptured up together to be with him Right? And some would say, hey, that's what Jesus was talking about in John 14, that we will be with him, and so on. And, and that's what happened with John, and we kind of are represented through John there going up to be where he is, and so on. Um, but these are major passages uh, to why the rapture. Um, so again, John Darby, others like him, those from his camp, those who have come after Um, didn't create the idea of a rapture. You see it in scripture. Um, Didn't even really, I know he's the father and founder of dispensationalism, which sees God working throughout history different ages, seasons, uh, dispensations. We've talked about that. Um, But he put language to it, and he put a theology behind it to produce this overall kind of vision of the end times, And as we've seen over the last 150 years, this has become really the major and main kind of interpretational um, stance um, by most, in the evangelical world at least, the Southern Baptist world and so on, and others of like faith and belief. Uh, So next week what we're gonna do, is with all that information, is we're gonna look at these passages and, and break them down and, and seek to, to answer the question, is the rapture plausible from a biblical worldview? Um, and uh should be a good discussion. And we'll see what the answer is. I don't know, so. Um, questions though, I threw a lot at you tonight. History and all sorts of things. Hopefully I answered the where, the what, and the why. But any questions on anything you heard tonight? Clarification you need. Well, for some homework this week, I encourage you, read through some of those passages, pray through them, walk through them, and just um, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through them next week. So let me pray for us, and then uh, if you got a question, just come find me after. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. We love you. And Lord, I pray that you continue to give us discernment, wisdom, Assurance, confidence, knowing that one day Jesus is coming again. And oh, what a day, what a day that will be. And we give you all the glory now and then and forevermore. We praise you. We love you. Bless each person. Equip and empower each person through your word and your spirit for us to be the people you've called us to be in every situation and circumstance, ultimately to bring glory and honor to your name and draw people to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, thank y'all. See y'all later.